Welcome to another episode of Storytelling with Seth. This is episode number 69, and I'm your host, Seth Singleton. I'm starting things off with a quote by math professor and speaker John Allen Paulos, who says that uncertainty is the only certainty there is, and knowing how to live with insecurity is the only security. Right now, I believe insecurity and uncertainty are something we have in abundance. Through them, we are learning to interpret new phrases like social distancing, shelter at home, and the many responsibilities that come with both categories and choices. And yet, There is a change, a adjustment that comes with the process of interpreting those ideas. And through social distancing, we've been lucky enough to hear and share stories about those we and others have been lucky enough to connect or reconnect with during a time that can feel so isolating. I was lucky enough to participate in something like that when I made contact with a great friend, Dr. Sarah Webb. Now, Dr. Sarah Webb, or Dr. Sarah, or as I remember her best, my good friend Sarah, is someone I've been lucky enough to have a conversation with on more than one occasion. And the insight she provides have been astounding and revelatory. I was lucky enough to schedule a time for both of us when we were looking for ways to best understand and seize this time that we're required to take and that can feel so uncomfortable and different compared to our normal routines and our daily expectations. Along the way, I was able to catch up with her about many of the programs she's involved in, like Colorism Healing, her recent teaching position, and how together we can discuss many of the ideas she broaches and how they can relate to many of the concerns we're facing now. Midway through, she turned the tables on me a bit and began asking me a few questions that I can say comfortably and confidently I have not been asked before. And I was surprised not only by the direction they took, but by the answers I gave and the joyful and exploratory discoveries that were found through the process of being asked and answering. I'd like to invite you now to join me for a great conversation with my friend, Dr. Sarah Webb, as we cover not only many topics, but the range of understanding we're beginning to employ during this time. When reconnecting is possible through a concept like social distancing.
Thank you for sitting down with us today. This is uh, another episode of Storytelling with Seth, but instead of it being a straight across interview, this is a great chance for me to have a conversation, conversation with uh, a great friend, a former classmate, a, uh, a person who has taken a path that I would love to someday journey, but I'm not sure if it's in my future. She was able to uh, leave the place where we both were studying at, at California College of the Arts and transition to a PhD program. I'm going to say Louisiana. I could be wrong. And if I am, I accept that. But I do know that she later accepted a teaching position in Illinois. And my good friend Sarah has been on, on more than one occasion, she has really steered the conversation through a myriad of topics, all coming back to the idea of the stories that we're telling, the stories we want to see, the stories that represent uh, the parts of ourselves that we best recognize and believe have a value in the fabric of grand storytelling, theater, film, and all other facets that we get to share, some of which we might get a chance to touch on today. I promised I would keep this relatively short and sweet and remember the five B's of be brief, baby, be brief. So without any further fanfare, I would like to introduce my good friend and conversation partner today, Miss Sarah Webb. Hi, Sarah. How are you? Hey, how are you, Seth? I'm doing great. <laughs> I'm really glad to hear. And uh, it if it's happening to you already, it's okay. But Sarah has this really infectious smile to her tone when she talks. So I almost imagine her always smiling and then find myself smiling because she just <laughs> sounds that full of joy. So if you hear a lot of chuckling and laughter for no reason on both our parts or just mine, that is one of the causes and I'm happy to admit my complicity in it. Um, Sarah, I know that, uh, you know, we have so many different things to talk about, but the first thing I want to get to is this project, which was such a feature uh, the last time we were chatting and something that I feel has really uh, developed a current and a rhythm and a growth and expansion that you can give me more insight into. I'm talking, of course, about your colorism healing uh, writing contest that just wrapped and all the facets of the project that you can talk about with us today. Yeah. Um... So the Colorism Healing Project began as a blog, right? So as Seth mentioned, we went to CCA together and we were getting MFAs in writing. And I left California and started teaching high school back in my hometown in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. But I didn't have a, a writing outlet, right? So as a young teacher, first year teacher, I was spending all my time, you know, working with students and working on that job. So that summer, I wanted to reconnect to my writing practice. And I started blogging about a lot of random things. And then one day, um, I saw the topic of colorism come up on, online. And I said, well, you know, this is something that I've always like had in the back of my mind. It's always been like a part of my experience. Um, but I never really spoke out about it for various reasons, mainly out of fear. Um, and so I decided to write a blog post about it. And I talk about how it took me 30 minutes to have the courage to press publish because <laughs> um, it's very a personal topic, you know, and um, a sensitive topic too, not just for me, but for other people um, in African-American communities and other communities of color in particular. Um, and then I decided that there was enough there to dedicate 
um, an entire website to it to really make that the main focus. So I started the Colorism Healing website. And on that website, um, anyone who's familiar with analytics and the backgrounds of websites, you know, you can see the search terms that people use to find your websites. And so some of the words people were typing into Google or Yahoo were like poetry about colorism or books about colorism, poems about colorism. Um, and I realized that there actually wasn't a lot of that online at the time. This was in 2013. Um, so I decided, well, why don't we generate some poetry about colorism? And I decided that a good way to do that, a good way to encourage people or inspire people to write on this topic was to have a contest, right, with a cash prize, sort of as an incentive to sort of speak up and tell a story or your personal story about colorism. Um, and so that's grown over the years since 2013, and it's become an international contest. And uh, I've had people from California to Australia to South Africa, Canada, India, um, people of all ages. It is primarily um, people who identify as women, especially young women. Uh, this year, it was about 90% um, women. And in the past, it's been about 80% women. And the, the phase after the contest was, okay, so what do we do with these submissions, right? So I published some online, but then I also felt like it would be good to have a physical book or a, a collection where all of these were in one document or in one package, right? And so then I started publishing the Colorism Healing Anthologies. And that's grown into teaching workshops in high schools, doing professional developments for teachers. Um, and then around 2014, I said, hey, now I actually have something I care enough about to go back to school and get a PhD. Um, and so I wrote my dissertation for grad school on colorism. And it's kind of, I'm just kind of immersed in the world in the topic of colorism from day to day, you know, it, whether it's running my social media accounts and having people um, send me messages or DMs or tag me in posts about the topic. Um, it's kind of been uh, a life's, a, a labor of love, I guess you would say, a labor of love. So it hasn't been something that I've um, earned like income from. Um, a lot of times I pay for the cash prizes out of pocket, you know, if I don't have time to fundraise or things like that. Um, but yeah, now, you know, it's part of something that I can also bring my students in on, right? So this year's contest, for the first time, I have a partner, um, my writing student, who's a junior at the University of Illinois in Springfield, Diana Vasquez, who's really interested in being in the publishing industry herself. That's her desired career path. Um, she wants to advocate for writers and authors of color. Um, and she also has personally, as a woman of color herself, dealt with the issue of colorism. So this was the perfect opportunity for her. Um, so she's been really, really doing a lot to help me, you know, help the writing contest evolve in different ways. And every year is a little different, right, for various reasons. Um, but this year it's different in the sense that I have an additional person bringing in their perspective bringing in their ideas, you know, even designing flyers or communicating with potential authors and judges and things like that. Um, so it's been a really great experience. And then I kind of, for the first time, am in a mentoring role with that. 
And so I realized I had to become way more organized because my process for running the contest was very idiosyncratic as it could be when I'm the only one doing it. But now that I have to communicate with Diana, um, it does require uh, a lot more formality and structure on my part. So this is still a lot of uh, growth even for me. Um, and the a couple of things that you can look forward to, depending on when you hear the podcast, is that we will be publishing another chat book um, for this year's contest. And we always do a live virtual book launch on YouTube where we invite the authors to come on. They talk, they read their work. They talk about their writing process. They talk about their personal biographies and that kind of thing. And we have a dialogue with live Q&A from the audience and that sort of thing. So I'm really looking forward to that. And it should be middle the middle of May uh, of this year. And with all that, um, I guess the next question would be, well, actually, a couple of questions popped to mind. One, how many chapbooks? Because you said another chapbook. How many have preceded this one? Yeah, so three have come out so far. Um, the first two years I did the contest, um, I had not published a book. So the first one is combining those two years. And then after that, um, there's the, so the first one is 2014 and 2016 contests. <clears throat> and then the second one is the 2017 contest. And the third one is the 2018 contest. I did not do a 2019 or 2015 writing contest. Um, so this one will be the fourth of the series. And, you know, you mentioned <laughs> a couple of things that answered some questions I was thinking about, like, mm -hmm. how did you come up with the prizes? Um, mm -hmm. Were you bootstrapping in any way? And it sounds like in a few occasions, you know, it might have just been pulling from your own pocket. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the, the first time I had left the... Uh, teaching profession. And so I had a bit of retirement, um, like a lump sum. So the very first contest, I didn't really feel it. You know, I was like, oh, I have uh, this small, relatively small lump sum, but it's more than enough to distribute cash prizes for this contest. And then in years after, I've done a mix of soliciting um, donations on um, crowdfunding sites and then one year there was a very generous donation from an organization that gives funds to women, black women who are doing creative projects. And um, this year it'll be um, self-funded, right? Just because of the, the timeline, right? And it didn't have the scheduling for fundraising. Um, so that has affected like the size of the prizes um, mm. in the past. Like for the very first one, I was able to do a couple of hundred dollars but it's also the cash prizes are relatively small because I also don't want people submitting just because of the money, right? So I do want people who maybe need cash prizes as an incentive to go ahead and submit something, but I also want them to sort of have a connection to the issue also, right? Or have some kind of interest or desire to understand themselves or the issue more deeply. So I think by keeping the prize is modest. Um, it balances the incentive part with also the genuine or authentic participation. 
I would imagine so. Um, and I like that approach, <laughs> the idea that you could, you know, think about the fact that, hey, I'm not trying to just get people who are in this for how much money they can make off of each contest or, you know, what that motivation does to their writing. But the mm-hmm. question of, look, there's a recognition that comes with this cash prize, but more there's a recognition that comes with voicing this thought, this opinion, this idea, sharing it, expressing it, and allowing it to be part of a public project, which is, yeah. you know, what it sounds like the the main goal should be for those who uh, have and are looking to participate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, when it comes to the organization process, uh, you mentioned that now that you're a little bit more responsible to somebody else, mm-hmm. uh, there's been some adjustment period. Um, I definitely know that when I need somebody else to look at what I'm doing or I'm trying to communicate something, it requires more organization. I can't mm-hmm. just, you know, open up my brain and say, here you go. Um, what's <laughs> been the biggest adjustment with, uh, I'm sorry, I'm going to make sure, Diana, correct? Yes, Diana. So with Diana joining the team, what's the first thing that you really had to take charge of in order to sort of be accountable to her and also make sure that you're giving her the best tools to do what you're asking of her? So the first thing is very practical in terms of organizing the files, like all the disparate files. And I've gone through multiple computers since starting the contest. So my files are kind of everywhere. The cloud access that I had at that time, I no longer have access to. Um, So searching through old emails for, you know, templates of things and digging up old accounts that I haven't logged into in a while to find templates and drafts of uh, posts or emails and stuff like that has been one of the, I think, biggest hurdles, right? So um, I think that speaks to having uh, systems in place, even for yourself, so that you can possibly scale, right? Thinking about even if it's I'm just the one person show now, um, what if I do having the foresight to realize that, well, I might have to collaborate at some point, or, you know, if this grows or evolves in some way, that having the system in place would make collaboration easier. Um, I think the other thing is, making sure so for me it's really important that diana gets as much out of this as possible so she's getting uh three college credit hours so it's about like taking a regular class and of course the goal of taking a college class is to learn right and so communicate having incur getting her to communicate her goals right and getting her to communicate her intentions and what she sees for her career and her future and sort of making this experience um, one that will give her the the school the skills and the experience that she most needs and wants so i think that's been a dance Um, and again it's not just um, me knowing that that has to be part of this internship uh, relationship but also finding a way to bring it out of her as well, right? So asking her the right kinds of questions so that it's clear to me um, how best to help her, how best to be a mentor to her, what kinds of opportunities I should be bringing her on for and that kind of thing. Do you feel like doing this has influenced uh, any aspect of the project as you view it, approach it, uh, were, you know, working through it or now that it's come to a close with the contest already ended? Yeah, it's it's done a lot because 
I've played with the idea in the past, or it's crossed my mind in the past, you know, what if I want to pass the contest on to someone else? And this relates to branding in, in a way. Um, Indeed. It, I have been a one-woman show since the beginning. I am sort of synonymous with the brand. So when people think of colorism healing, most people think of me. And so this is the first time that there's um, an individual, that there's a face, that there's a voice that is not mine, that is communicating with the public and um, like representing, you know, this project. Um, and so that for like on my end, that has helped me ease into the idea that I don't have to be at the forefront of every project of colorism healing. You know, I don't have to be um, the primary person to communicate via email, right? Or even um, like writing press releases and things like that. So it's been an experiment for me to see what it feels like to have colorism healing be a project that for once is not, um, that I'm not sort of at the core of it. I guess in many ways I am, right? Because I still produce most of the content like on social media and YouTube and things like that. But mainly in terms of corresponding with the authors and corresponding with the writers um, and coming up with design ideas for flyers. Um, it's really been interesting for me to see what it's like to have a different um, face, voice and perspective be part of the project. I would imagine. I'd also imagine it allows you to do in that process, not being on the front lines as much, step mm -hmm. back and see the whole forest for the trees idea, you know, get a larger perspective, um, sort of see how the process goes when you're able to step aside and not be as active in it, but look at it and sort of watch as it develops, um, play a different role as far as either guidance or, um, which I think the other trade-off would be, you know, not guiding and allowing someone to independently take charge of those things. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it's also helped me realize how much I have learned and how many skills I've picked up in doing this. So I, mm. a lot of the skills required to like host the contest and publish the books are not taught in school, right? Even in art schools or creative writing schools. Um, so I've spent countless hours on, on forums, on YouTube, looking for tutorials on how to set up a website, how to use Google Forms and just all sorts of things. Um, and so it's also fulfilling to be able to give her the shortcut, right? So, so that Diana doesn't have to spend hours on forums looking for how to, you know, create a webpage um, to kind of give, uh, her that leg up, so to speak, right? To give her a stepping stone for herself and in, in terms of her career as well. So that's, I, I think, good for for me and like other people in similar situations to be able to reflect on, you know, oh, this when I was in, at that phase, you know, this is what where I was, right? Versus where I am now. And so working with someone who's also younger, right? There, There's a lot of opportunity there for reflecting on my own journey and my own path as well. Yeah, and being able to recognize just how many skills you might not have had the opportunity to sort of quantify, but now you can start seeing them and going, hey, you know, yeah. <laughs> look at look at what I bring to the table. I, you know, I, I, I got a, you know, a pretty nice toolkit here and I got some tricks. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, 
you know, you, you mentioned a couple of things that I, I thought were interesting. Also, uh, you're always tracking the analytics of the contest, and you noticed that this year there was about 90% um, submissions from women compared to 80%, I think you said last year or within recent years. Right, yeah. And I'm wondering if you've uh, been able to see beyond what those percentages might mean, if there's uh, been some sort of contributing uh, – detail that that points to what that percentage might be including where uh that could you know provide some insight or what you're able to just glean you know from uh, the submissions and also that percentage yeah definitely it's something i've thought about a lot and it's also something i called myself trying to mitigate or correct at one time um Mm. so there's for people who know a little bit about colorism, one of the common features is that it does seem to be a woman's issue. Um, There are a lot of people who talk about the male perspective of colorism, but most of the dialogues, most of the research even point to the fact that women um, sort of have more at stake in this issue because of beauty standards. And I think that's the biggest... um, factor and why colorism <clears throat> impacts women or seems to impact women in a way that's more salient, maybe. Um, because it is, a lot of discussions are about what's considered beautiful and what's not considered beautiful. And so for that reason, um, a lot of the conversations talk about women. A lot of the documentaries are about women. There are other areas of colorism that um, men deal with. But in talking to men, um, I, a lot of what I've recognized, I even did an interview series called Men on Colorism, where I interviewed men about their experiences and ideas about colorism, specifically to figure out more of how to bring them to the table for the conversation. And what I gleaned from that um, process was that men are often discouraged from talking about things that hurt them or that hurt their feelings in particular, right? Or, you know, self-esteem issues or insecurities, right? All the things that come into play when we're talking about colorism, specifically colorism healing, right? And even the idea that men need healing, right? is still taboo in a lot of communities and for a lot of uh, guys. Um, So it's, I think that also plays a big part into it and just in terms of gender norms and gender roles and the standards that we place on men versus women. Um, And also one last thing that someone mentioned to me is that because I am a woman and going back to me being the voice and the face of the project for so long, that that sort of naturally attracts people who are identified with me, right? And so perhaps because more women are likely to see something in me that says, oh, I want to be a part of this, then that could also be a factor in why those numbers are the way they are. So those are my three hypotheses. I haven't done any scientific testing. (laughs) (laughs) Look forward to a sociological proposal (laughs) or sociology proposal made by Miss Dr. Sarah Webb. Uh, in the near future. 
<laughs> I I would imagine, you know, it did raise an interesting question, though. Um, I'm going to ask you one question, and then I'll explain why I am, and maybe that will uh, provide some insights as well. Okay. Did you notice out of curiosity among the percentage of men who submitted, if there was an age bracket in which you most found a commonality or a range to, to get those submissions from men? Was there a, was there a certain number in an older, younger bracket? That is a great question. So they were younger. And if I'm not mistaken, so it's been since 2013, so I could, my memory could be faulty. Actually, I know it is faulty. <laughs> um, <laughs> They were the the males who submitted were definitely younger, right? I would say under thirty, probably um, teenage to early twenties, if not preteen. Um, and also a trend that I noticed amongst men who submit is that their writing actually was not always personal writing. A lot of times it was more of a social commentary thing, so there was like this distancing happening. Um, and then other times the writing was completely off topic, right? So it was almost like um, even the 20% or, you know, 10% of people who identified as male contestants, um, if you break it down in terms of those who actually talked on topic and then those who actually shared like a story, then that number was even smaller. And I think one of the reasons the younger the demographic skewed younger for men is that I reach out to teachers a lot and educators. So I imagine that if they're in an English class or a social studies class and they're having their students write poems for the contest, right, then that probably um, is a source, right, is a pipeline for um, having young men submit as well. Interesting. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, I'm curious. And the reason I ask that is because I've also noticed this interesting trend recently. And I'm no sociologist. I am no <laughs> scientific expert of any kind. And my opinion probably means, well, whatever you want to measure me against, <laughs> I'm okay with how I fall short. But I have noticed an interesting pattern, especially among um, men who are known for being aggressive. Macho had public personas that mm -hmm. recognized that as being desirable or distinguishing trait. Mm -hmm. And that can be something that's um, that changes as they get older. Mm -hmm. And a recent example that I'm reminded of is uh, there's a surfer in Hawaii, uh, I believe. He could be from California. I'm not sure. My wife's much smarter about this stuff than I am. <laughs> uh, she knows all about the surfing culture. She's been following yeah, it since yeah. she was like a teenager. I remember, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And her knowledge base is just phenomenal. Like she mm -hmm. keeps up with who the big people are. Well, there's this guy named Sonny Garcia. And Sonny Garcia was known for being no nonsense, snap your surfboard in half in the water if you cross me, respect oh, the island, respect, uh, you know, respect the the islands respect the neighborhood a lot of times for a lot of locals there's a phrase called respect the skin mm -hmm. and and that's going to reference the idea of like hey we were here first yeah uh, and he actually uh got a, a greater degree of prominence when apparently owen wilson was in hawaii filming a movie called the big bounce mm -hmm. and while there, he inadvertently began trying to pick up on a very attractive woman who turned out to be Sonny Garcia's wife. Oh. And Sonny Garcia then punched him out. And <laughs> oh. 
this was this guy where you're thinking to yourself, like, everything this guy does sounds really violent. Well, about August, I want to say, of last year, he posted a message on social media saying, I don't want to be tough anymore. I don't want to be macho anymore. I don't want to. I, I, I want to change. Mm-hmm. And then more recently, uh, he was hospitalized after attempting his own life. Oh, and wow. I've noticed that, you know, there's been figures within football, uh, guys like Junior Seau, who are known for their physical toughness, but later when facing a really tough challenge, like the complications that come with uh, CTE mm-hmm. or uh, other sort of emotional factors that can develop just as we age, as we change, um, or as we address parts of ourselves that we might have covered up in the process of creating a, a public identity, a persona, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, something that we can use to protect ourselves, uh, that at some point, those barriers, those walls, they're going to get cracks. They're going to eventually start uh, allowing yeah. parts of yourselves that you're keeping hidden to to show through. And I just was curious if there was a, a potential for mm. uh, older participants or that there could have been a percentage of older participants who are like, hey, I'm past a certain age where I'm trying to prove myself to anybody. Mm-hmm. I'm just trying to be honest with myself. But it sounds like based on what you're talking about sourcing, it makes more sense that you would have younger participants who are yeah. school age and, you know, are encouraged because of teachers or uh, just exposure to the topic and how they can contribute, even if it gets a little off topic. Yeah. You know, Seth, I'm glad you brought that up because I do feel like despite what the numbers in my contest suggest, I do feel that our culture is shifting in terms of um demanding the machismo from men, right? It's obviously still here in many places, but I do see gradual change happening, right? I listen to um, Lewis Howes, who's another podcaster, um, and he talks about, you know, as a man, you know, coming out and telling stories that make him vulnerable. We have people like um, social workers and public speakers like Brene Brown who talk about the power of vulnerability and, um And then like even you and your podcast and being willing to open up and tell stories and share stories. So that we're seeing, fortunately uh, for us, we're seeing more and more men who are um, balanced, right? In terms of the masculine and feminine energy that everyone has, right? And not being um, polarized, like hyper-masculine, right? Um, Being able to find a balance between head and heart in many ways. And now we're going to take a quick break to pay some bills with this word from our sponsor. So, yeah, I'm glad that you brought up the fact that people can change and that people are changing. The culture is changing, you know. I'm hopeful of it. It's something I try and recognize in myself. Um, I'm, I have recognized that doing something like podcasting and it, it's it makes me as if, if not more so vulnerable than writing, I feel like mm-hmm. it's able to, you know, more people are able to access it than they are writing. Sometimes they're more willing to click and listen to someone than they are uh, read what they've written. I, I don't know what the investment of time means between eye and ear, but there's just something different. Like it's almost okay to make me a background voice if they choose to listen than right. it is to stop what they're doing in order to focus their attention on reading something yeah. I've written. Um but I, I do know that, you know, my transition happened when I started looking at 
sort of the destructive qualities that came with trying mm-hmm. to be macho. Um, I don't talk about it all the time. It's, it's one of those things where I feel like, uh, you know, other people have more compelling stories when it comes to their experiences. But mine was in a lot of ways, when I stopped drinking, I realized that I needed to address some of the things that made me drink. And yeah. one of them was the desire to be comfortable, to, mm-hmm. uh, avoid the anxiety, the, mm-hmm. uh, you know, introversion that, I struggled with and Mm -hmm. that in order to be comfortable, I often felt that I was, you know, vulnerable in public social settings. Mm -hmm. And in order to protect myself, I needed to create this veneer that could, you know, oil on water, keep me insulated Mm -hmm. in some way and also uh, engage with people in a way that felt like I wanted to be, but couldn't naturally. And that was everything from being social to, uh, you know, trying to be, you know, macho because I was tall or uh, because I felt like people needed protection. And the only way you can protect them is to try and be, you know, a big, you know, uh, protective figure who's also fearsome. And all of those things at some point were were something where I was like, but it's so much work. Mm-hmm. And it, that had actually been the biggest challenge to me to stopping drinking was like, but I've, I've made all these problems in my life. If I stop now, I'm going to have to deal with them. And that's just so much work. I can never undo all the wrong I've done. Um, and I know I haven't done as much wrong as plenty of other people. But as far as I'm concerned, what I did was wrong enough for me. And um, whether it was my actions towards others, my actions uh, in the public eye, I didn't think I could deal with those. And yet when I did stop gradually, I learned that I was not always the best way, not always the way I wanted to, or the way I thought I would when I used to think of how I am or how I thought I would handle things. But also in that process, there came this sort of recognition of, okay, well, if you can do this hard work, then you can also do the hard work that comes with dealing with the parts of you that you wouldn't deal with and that you only dealt with by turning to alcohol and other substances and and choosing a life that ignores those things, tries to uh, run away from them in some way. Um, Absolutely. And I think through that was, you know, that very slow journey of trying to also accept where I was, which was a great series I did with a friend of mine, Tara, about this idea of self-acceptance because Things I had wanted to be, whether an athlete who now had a bum knee or uh, maybe at a certain stage in my writing career, I, you know, passed a lot of those up while I was just kind of drinking too much and doing a lot of other foolish things that wasted my time and didn't give me time to focus on my craft. Um, When I did stop, I had to address, okay, well, those problems you were running from, they're now obstacles that will continue to get in the way of this thing you want to keep doing with yourself and you need to address them in some way um Mm -hmm. how well i've done it that that remains to be seen but having conversations listening um but i'm also intrigued by the idea of the fact that i haven't seen as many and i didn't see as many role models for me Mm -hmm. when i was looking for those examples and i'm intrigued now when i stumble across a story like this one about sunny garcia and that was a long kind of wraparound so Mm -hmm. thanks for staying with me on it but how now this is someone who, for whatever reasons, he's experiencing this challenge and 
He doesn't want to be macho either. He wants to bring about a change. Would it, you know, based on how we've sort of been talking about some of these ideas, do you think it would make a difference? And I'm, I'm guessing I know your answer, but also uh, if it would, what, what kind of a difference it would make for male figures who were voicing an opportunity to share, communicate, be open, be vulnerable by being that example that they can look to, much as you've been this amazing voice for colorism healing? Yeah, I absolutely do think it would make a difference to have those role models and those examples, right? And I hope I would, I probably should promote the uh, series on where I interviewed men on colorism more so that young men or just even older men really can just see examples of other men who are willing to open up and sort of um, acknowledge certain things. Um, But even going back to like, everything you said in terms of your, the story you just told um, resonates with me. I had uh, an alcoholic father who started going to AA when I was about five, right? And so I even wrote a poem about being in AA meetings at five and drinking the orange juice and eating the crackers and that sort of thing. But we think about who a lot of people's first male role model is, you know, for those who know their fathers or who have, you know, spent time with their fathers at all, right? Um, That's a classic example of how a male role model can have a positive or negative impact, right? So I do think that role modeling and seeing examples of other people can inspire you, can encourage you, can sort of show you a path forward. Um, Marianne Williamson has a quote that, you know, when you let your light shine, you give other people the permission to do the same, right? And there's even like the, the social experiment that all it takes is one person to start dancing before other people join in, you know? Um, so a lot of times people, you know, do need that permission, you know, like, oh, well, if so-and-so can be brave enough and courageous enough to um, address their insecurities or, you know, do the inner work that is so hard to do that most people try to run from at some point in our lives, um, then maybe I can give it a try myself. So I definitely think that matters for real. I'm, I'm curious to see, you know, what it will be like when we have more examples of that and we can follow that, you know, trend as it hopefully develops. Um, I, I'm curious to what it might be like at some point when you could have a male voice who could share the colorism healing message, join the team and and be one of those examples to say, I'm here to put myself forward, uh, provide an opportunity to speak from my perspective and maybe share something that connects with other men out there who are looking for someone to say it's okay to mm-hmm. follow my footsteps or to join this conversation. It's not restrictive. It's open to everyone who's willing to be vulnerable. And yeah. I took this chance too. So, you know, I'm extending the invitation. Yeah, absolutely. And when it comes to as many years as you've had a chance to do colorism healing now, is there a part of the evolution that you have tracked or been, you know, aware of in a way where you're thinking to yourself, this is something that I've seen become a byproduct that I also want to continue nurturing. Have there been sort of branches coming from the the main center that as they extend out, they've uh, either led to uh, expansion of where colorism healing reaches, as you mentioned, international, 
or uh, into ways that it's communicating its message. Because you've talked about the fact that, you know, there's so many different avenues that you're able to share it, whether it's uh, on conversations, giving presentations or on YouTube. Yeah, definitely. And that I was actually thinking about that and talking about um, sort of being able to release control of the contest and having, you know, a project assistant now and not having to run everything, not having to manage the smaller day to day quotidian tasks of just getting the contest off the ground. You, you, as you said, you know, I'm able to step back and look at the bigger picture of things. And it also frees up my mental energy and also just my time in terms of saying, well, if I were to project into the future, right? Like, could I have something where I focus on like speaking engagements or I focus on delivering workshops and have like a team of, you know, people who run the contests all on their own, you know? Um, and so yeah, still having, um, a connection to it, right? Still having it be about colorism healing, but having sort of a department, right? Or if you're thinking about a business that has like the such and such department or the such and such branch, um, having the writing contest sort of be able to roll and run on its own independent of me so that I can do more of the sort of teachery things, right? So even mm -hmm. in thinking about having Diana as a project assistant with um, the writing contest, I was able to spend time working on producing a video with writing prompts, right? And I want to do more of that, right? So leading writing workshops, right? Um, when I'm not focused on managing the day-to-day -day task of the contest, then I can do sort of bigger umbrella things. Um, and then also um, the contest is um, a good gateway for other types of community engagement. So I have done uh, my first art exhibit um, in 2019 wow. at the University of North Carolina in Wilmington. I don't know if you remember Bert, Ritchie, and Courtney. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So Courtney is a photography professor at UNCW, and so I reached out to her to um, help me organize an art exhibit on that campus. Um, and so going forward, I would like to do more of the visual art with the creative writing um, synthesis, right? And I think when I was at CCA, I don't know if you remember, we sort of did something like that. A few of us got together. Um, it was called the Unselfed Portrait, right? So we had artwork hanging up in the writer's studio and then we had a reading, you know, on the topic. I do um, remember the Unselfed Portrait. That was a great project. Yeah. So doing um, <clears throat> more events like that, you know, where, you know, where, you know, there's an art exhibit, but there's also like a reading series and even like a, an anthology or a collection inspired by the exhibit. Um, yeah. So there are a lot of uh, many projects that I've thought about. And so I, the Colorism Healing Writing Contest is sort of the flagship Right. So mm -hmm. I would be very interested in seeing how I can make it self-sustaining so that I'm not attached to the every the day to day running of it. Right. And I can sort of launch or build up other types of projects. When it comes to colorism healing and the contest and everything else, is there anything I've been missing along the way that, you know, is upcoming? Um, 
part of a new development, anything that I guess I want to make sure you have an opportunity to include. But for whatever reason, I wasn't smart enough to ask the question. <laughs> um. Well, there are a few things. So I've mentioned the anthology that'll come out um, in the book launch that's streamed live on YouTube in May. Um, I did write uh, a grant application to take uh, the travel the exhibits, the art exhibits um, on the road and sort of make it a traveling exhibit. But we don't know yet if we've been approved or had our application accepted for that. But if it gets accepted, that'll be something in the pipeline. Um, I'm also working on a book manuscript. So this will be my first single authored book if I can get it under, con- finish it and get it under contract um, about colorism and inspired by all the work I've been doing since 2013. Um, so that's sort of my summer, like once the semester's over um, to spend my summer writing and finishing that. Um, but other than that, uh, those are sort of the pillars of colorism healing. Um, I actually, inspired by you, I did start um, a podcast channel. Um, I, it's an ex- in the experimentation phase right now, so I don't really know what kind of podcast it'll be. Um, but I've been uploading some audio based on a lot of the YouTube content that I create. Um, So I'll see, you know, I'm also very willing to start projects and try things and see if they go anywhere and then, you know, leave them alone if they don't. Right. So Mm -hmm. even like with the men on colorism interview series, I thought that would be compiled into a documentary of some sort. But I figured a series of individual interviews um, on YouTube was sufficient, you know, in terms of where I needed to go next with the project. Um, yeah, and I'm open to ideas, right? And people see things that are see something in a current project that they think would be a good spinoff, right? So I get a lot of like feedback that way too. Interesting. You know, remind me when we're done with this recording. I actually think I know one or two uh, men who are writers who might be open to having a conversation with you. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would, as soon as you... We're talking about that Men on Colorism series. I thought, you know what? I actually know a couple of really interesting writers. You might be intrigued and might be open to it. So I'm going to I'm gonna remind me at the end because you also brought up some other stuff that I want to go back to. And sometimes <laughs> I have kind of a pinball brain. It's, yeah. it's great. And it, it gets all these lights. But, you know, you got to okay. slow it down just you enough. You said something <laughs> I want to go back to, too. So we're doing the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, really quickly. One, grants. Is it possible? Can the average human being do it? Because every time I see a grant writer position and I'm just like going through the details to see, they're like, yeah, you must have five to 10 years of experience doing this. You must show you can execute certain things. And I'm thinking to myself, in the end, you're asking for money. Mm-hmm. So how does it, you know, I, I think it's a lot like, you know, a lot of other things. Like, how do you get from the initial idea to the actual uh, accomplishment of it or doing the process? Like, where did you discover the grant that you applied for? Um, yeah. Was it a superhuman effort? Did you feel like when it was done, it was a lot of work, but it was doable? Uh, can we give any encouragement for anyone out there, <clears throat> i.e. potentially me, should actually <laughs> like go for it? Yeah. So that is a great question because I was always over too overwhelmed to approach grants myself, right? 
Um, they sound the, scary. I'm just going to be is, honest. They it's sound scary. scary. It's very intimidating. And one of the, uh, I think, benefits of having the job that I do at a university is that there are such resources there to help me with things like that. And so that was... It's probably a big distinguishing as well. So it sounds like find the one that fits for you. Mm-hmm. Understand all the terms involved and whether or not you can qualify just as an individual or if there's a, you know, a larger need involved. And then if that's how far you're willing to go in order just to get a grant. Um, and then after all that, should you find one that you can apply for individually and that's out there and that you qualify for? It's about putting in the work to have all the details ready and then to uh, <laughs> make your argument. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Now, uh, the other thing I wanted to follow back up. Oh, sorry. Did I cut you off? No, I was saying you said it. Oh, <laughs> um, so the other thing I just wanted to follow back on is you started podcasting. And what you can tell me about that. <laughs> yeah. So I, ever since our first podcast, to be honest, I was so impressed with um, the technology that you use. And I was like, this I need to put this on my to do list. Right. And a couple of years later, it took a while. Um, I actually, um, and I think actually recent, like immediately after that initial podcast, because I created an account, right. So that I could engage with you through the, um, app and things like that. Um, so I had the account, I just had not uploaded any content. And then I was listening to, um, a, I, I consume a lot of YouTube videos, but then I discovered that a lot of those people, um, double dip their video content with um, audio content. Um, In particular, Gary Vaynerchuk is one person I've been listening to recently. Um, So I said, okay, well, it's not um, my, for me, it's not my primary mode of communication is audio, but there might be people who want to just listen, like you said, listen in the background while they wash dishes or while they walk the dogs. And so they don't necessarily want to look at my face on a YouTube video, but they still are interested in the content that I'm saying or speaking. Um, So I've just been like converting um, video content, audio visual content into the audio content um, for podcast form. Um, So that's where that has gone. That's the extent of what I've developed in terms of that. Um, Yeah. So I'm curious to know for you, right, um, what your podcasting journey has been like with storytelling with South Seth. That was one of the questions I had actually um, seeing how this journey, this podcasting journey has been for you um, tips you have for like young podcasters and young in terms of experience, right? Not necessarily an age. Um, So what are your thoughts on the podcasting life and that journey for you? Wow. I, you know, I, haven't spent as much time thinking about it as a journey as I have. What am I going to put on the next one? Which is generally my biggest problem whenever I'm, I'm <laughs> right. Like what, it, you know, when it comes to content, it's like, what am I going to say? Because there's a part of you that, you know, I think it goes back to what you were saying about uh, your first podcast with colorism healing and the idea of, okay, so you know, I'm about to put something out there and I don't know how people are ever going to respond to it. I, I, I don't even know. And that's probably one of the other things is, am I qualified? You know, what's my, what's my qualifications for saying this? Like, you know, how, how can I turn around and say to people, 
I'm an authority. You should listen to me. And what I'm about to talk about is something that is really going to be of value. So one of the fun things about it is just now, uh, my wife came home from rollerblading and I just had to mute our conversation because I saw her putting together laundry and I was like, hey, that's going to come up on our audio. <laughs> is there any way I can ask you not to do that? And that can be the biggest challenge is mm-hmm. when do I record? Yeah. How do I find a time in the day when I'm not being the world's greatest inconvenience to other people by asking for mm-hmm. it to not be noisy? And then also recognize that the other complications um, are completely out of my control. Mm-hmm. Like if it's a certain day of the week and a certain time, they're picking up trash and then recycling and then compost. And none of the people outside who are doing their job care that I'm trying to record or that the noise that they're making ruins the recording I'm trying to make. Um, And that could be, you know, a big deal where when I was living in the apartment in Oakland, the hardest part was the fact that all around me, there were noise makers, Um, whether it was the freeway roaring by, which was only like about five blocks away. I lived right off of Grand, which is a very busy street. Um, Oakland has its share of protests. Those Mm -hmm. can get really um, finding a time to do it. I started waking up at four in the morning. Salt tastes bad. And he said, yeah, sometimes salt tastes bad. That's, you know, that's part of the trade-off. I feel like I'm not always going to be popular with what I'm saying or trying to say. And that fear can keep me from saying it. Or I can be authentic and know that my goal isn't to make everybody comfortable or happy. My goal is to try and say what I believe is a truth in the most authentic way I can share. Absolutely. That, no, that certainly resonated with me, like everything you just said. And I, <laughs> you know, I think that's one of the reasons why I focused on courage for so long is so that I would have the bravery to speak authentically, knowing that when I speak my truth on a topic like colorism, which is very controversial, very taboo, very triggering for people, um, often citing like arguments in person or in comment sections, um, it gets scary. And I like just for my own mental health and my own energy, sometimes I've had to pull back from speaking about it so much because um, it does uh, require like being authentic does require also self-care on the back end. Right. Because we are exposed to the criticism. We are exposed to the judgment. Um and yeah, that was why I was so afraid to publish that first blog post on colorism, because in my personal life, so many people had been dismissive or, you know, um, various forms of like bullying because you speak your truth. Um, and at the same time, though, it's made me more compassionate and listening to other people's truths that might not align with mine. You know what I mean? Um, I think it's possible for two truths to be um contradictory right um and so in finding the courage to speak my own truth i've also learned to be more compassionate and open and empathetic to listening to other truths that might um trigger me for various reasons so it's it is a process one that i'm still imperfect at right and i think even being authentic enough to say that you're not an expert right or being authentic <laughs> enough to say that i don't have you know years of uh 
you know, experience in this area, but this is my current perspective. As limited as that current perspective might be, this is what it is, you know? It is. It's it's probably about the only firm footing I can actually assure myself of is that the the footing is not firm. <laughs> I am uncertain. And it's almost like, look, I'm going to trust that I am uncertain right now and mm-hmm. share with you I am uncertain. And until that changes, that is all. <laughs> um, but it's also extremely humbling because like a post, you can have this great idea that, you know, you believe will resonate. You put it up and you watch and nothing happens. And you wonder what was the purpose of the message? Did the message have value? Did you miss something? Did somebody already get there? And (laughs) you can almost rethink, question yourself. I'm sure as I go through the podcast and as I go through my posts, I'll discover things and think to myself, that's when you were trying something. You, you weren't sure. You didn't know. Clearly, uh, based on the lack of response, you, you whiffed. But you also, for whatever reason, were drawn to that. So yeah. did you learn anything from it? Well, what did that, does that still mean something now? Um, and sometimes I can't. Other times I can find myself go, oh, you were onto something. You just missed it, man. Let's let's look back at that again. Um, but it's an uncertainty that's really my only sort of certainty. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. But that's why I think so many more people would be sharing their authentic stories, right? If they were willing to take that risk of uncertainty, right? This might flop. This might not work. This could be wildly successful before I'm prepared for that level of success, right? Because then there's that aspect of it too. Like if I get a million shares, like will I crumble under the weight of exposure, right? So crumbling under yeah. the weight of like being ignored versus crumbling under the weight of too much attention or, you know, so there's always a risk involved. But I, I definitely, you know, see and follow and you know, everything that you post and well, I'm not gonna say everything because all the rhythm. But it definitely as like a fellow, you know, person who's putting stuff out there, um, it's definitely encouraging to see people I know personally also taking those risks and also um, you know, trying things. I I sort of find myself, you know, saying, Well, what else are you gonna do? I sort of feel like I came through, you know, it certainly wasn't a near-death experience, but I sort of feel like I wasn't going to end well in the path that I was on. And when I stopped and changed my direction, there was a part of me that's saying, okay, so did you do that? Did you guarantee yourself a longer, healthier life just for the purpose of saying, hey, look, I have a longer and healthier life. Or were there things you were actually trying to do that you can do now and might give, you know, the parts of you that were looking for meaning uh, a bit of a purpose or a direction? That's uh, (laughs) been the the whole hope and, and dream and goal. And sometimes that's the only other thing I have is that I don't know what else I'm doing except I'm trying to take the best advantage of the fact that I'm here and I know I've done so much so far. I think I can keep going and I believe I have a purpose behind that or a reason for doing it. And 
beyond that, I sometimes will just say, you're doing this because this is what you... And now we're going to take a quick break to pay some bills with this word from our sponsor. Feel is right, right now, and you have to trust, if nothing else, that feeling. You know, that sort of uh, guidance. Um, They tease me on the podcast I do with the other, uh, we joke, refer to ourselves as the cohorts, the nerds. And when we're chatting, they'll they'll give me a bit of ribbon pretty good, but also a bit of, you know, good hearted that I'm the hopeful one. I'm the one who (laughs) on more than one occasion will say, yeah, but, you know, look at all the possibility or isn't this great that maybe this can happen now? Or just because something's ending doesn't mean that the end is, you know, a certainty or that it can't be revisited at some point. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a part of that that as I recognize it is me saying, I don't know what I can do. I know that I can hope and that in the process of hoping I can try. Mm. And then the act of trying, if I'm successful, I will do something. I, (laughs) I, I sometimes feel like the process is just that basic, um, one step after another. And if I find myself achieving a destination or reaching a goal, it's, It's like, oh, hey, look where you are. Isn't that great? Okay, let's try that again. Excellent. I'm going to be (laughs) on the social media sites. You what? (laughs) I'm going to be quoting you on all the social media. (laughs) You're you're one of the reasons why I love having these conversations. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I know I've been asking you a lot of questions. I know you said you had a few for me. Did I do a good job in answering most of them? Were there any still left I I can uh, respond to for you, or yeah, you feel definitely. like I'm giving the extra or the the other half of this conversation? Yeah, you definitely answered one of the big ones I had, which was you know all about what podcasting has been for you, you know, how you got, how you've gotten started, what you've learned along the way. And so you did an excellent job, you know, outlining that, um, impromptu by the way. Right. So freestyling it. And you had these like succinct, uh, moments of like insight. Right. So I, I think you, it demonstrates that you have practice, right. I don't know if you, (laughs) but to be able to speak so clearly and concisely in an impromptu situation like that, demonstrates a level of practice and you've refined not only your storytelling and writing abilities but like your speaking abilities and all that sort of thing I don't know if at CCA we had a whole bunch of opportunities to speak you know like for extended periods of time no we didn't actually it was interesting if you remember uh, I think you and I were in California fiction uh no it was no it was it was one writing class where we were reading from different collect. Oh no, that's what it was. I was in a California fiction class, uh-huh. and through that, I was asked to read "Ask the Dust" for a group. And then it was through that that I ended up getting involved. Where I remember you and I were doing a class where you had me doing some reading uh, a couple of times. Yeah. And between that and this other one, suddenly I started having a few people say, "Like, hey, would you read this for us for this thing?" <laughs> and I'd say, "Why?" And 
of all people, Tom Barbash at one point pulled me aside and was like, Seth, you know you have a great voice. And I was like, oh, thanks, Tom. And later I saw him about a year ago. And when I mentioned doing podcasting, he was like, oh, dude, you know you have a great voice, right? Um, so suddenly, like, being aware that people are paying attention to my voice has always been that thing that forced me to, like, hey, if you're going to hear what I'm saying, I better have something to say. Yeah. Um, so hopefully um, – or – Right. Hopefully you've you've demonstrated for me that it, it would appear I've gotten better at doing that, or at least my practice is showing. <laughs> yeah, and I will say for everyone listening that if you haven't seen Seth in person, that he also has gra- gravitas and his physical stature as well. Not just because he's tall, but just demeanor, mannerisms, like when I see you talk in person, like the presentation is equally as engaging as it is in the audio experience <laughs> are you one of those people who's trying to get me to do youtube now too you're very sweet <laughs> because uh I, i'm struggling with it although i have been thinking about an idea of reading comics to my nieces and nephews in another state and doing a video of me like just reading them books and something like that but um geez that was a glowing <laughs> series of compliments thank you sarah that's very very yeah, kind to say <laughs> um, I know for me, I started picking back up with the YouTube videos because I teach a lot of online classes now. And so students don't get to see a face unless I'm willing to do video, right? So not all professors do videos, but I think the, on the online class setting can feel kind of sterile and like distant and detached if you aren't putting in like extra effort to put a, put your face out there, to put your voice out there. So I started doing videos with my classes and I was like, I kind of like this video thing, huh. <laughs> but I want to do more of it, you know, just like for my own stuff. Um, so that's what made me like recently get back into, you know, YouTube as a platform. Um, so well, you always come across so poised and patient. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. But it's definitely something to experiment with, you know, like if you, start a YouTube channel and you realize it's really, really not the path for you, you can always take it down or just leave it up as archives. Um, I think we have a lot of years ahead of us still, despite the fact that we have <laughs> toured uh, so <laughs> where the, the road will lead next, right? Yeah, I... Thank you for that. I've I've slowly been turning some videos of my podcasts into YouTube, like mm-hmm. running the audio with some images. But um, yeah. taking that next step, I I'm not sure what the biggest reservation of or reservation is for me. I, I do know that it would be another example of vulnerability. Mm-hmm. Um, you always look Absolutely. so collected and composed whenever I see you in speaking engagements. I always thought that you had this great presence and composure just seemed to resonate with everything that you said and did. I have never felt that same degree of composure um, and believe that my nervousness would start bringing about my tics and uh, eccentricities right there on the camera. But um, given your example, I, I might be persuaded to, uh, you know, venture. We'll see. <laughs> yeah, and it definitely is like an ongoing uh, practice, you know. I think 
we all have like personalities and like nature is definitely a part of all of this, right? So some people's nature, their natural personalities lend more to the audio setting or the video setting or the writing with maybe photography or there's so many different modes of expression. Um, and I think the, I think the best we can do is to, as you said, maybe try it and then use feedback to determine whether or not to continue or to revise or to continue like as um, previous, you know, or to just end it. Right. Um, so that's kind of how I look at it. Right. Kind of even with like trying out a podcast now and just seeing like what kind of feedback I get from that or what I learn maybe from trying a podcast that I could apply to a different platform in the future. Mm. Yeah. And then people say that everything on the internet is forever, but if you delete it, most people will not be able to find it. <laughs> this is true. You have the option. <laughs> Click the red delete. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> one question that I had, you yeah. kind of already said it, but one question I had is whether or not you had a story that you've never told or that you rarely tell to your audience. Ooh, wow, that's a good question. Yeah, and uh, any kind of story, right? It doesn't have to be like a deep, esoteric story. It could be any kind of story that you feel you haven't said yet or that you haven't said enough or, yeah. You know, there's a, boy, when I think about that, that's a, that's a good one. Um, <laughs> I, I, I wonder about you know, which stories I, I keep to myself and which I should be sharing. I do remember that I wrote a story once when I took a creative writing class at a community college. And it it was weird. I, I uncovered a memory that every once in a while I'll huh. revisit. And it, it feels so surreal that I'm, I, I start to doubt myself if it ever happened. Mm -hmm. But um, my mom and dad were really great at trying to get us by on dad's salary while mom was uh, going to school for her teaching credential. And, you know, they, they knew how to stretch money. They were just, my dad was amazing when it came to stretching a buck. Um, and along the way, my mom would wrangle pennies from him to do things like take trips. And she loved Yosemite. She loved nature. Being outside in it was a little bit different, but she loved looking at it. And we would take a trip or two to Yosemite. We could rarely afford to stay inside. We'd like go to a hotel outside or try camping in Curry Village or camp in a nearby campground and then drive in or something like that. And I remember going with them and I'm relatively young and I'm with my sister. And while we are wandering through, we see deer and I start chasing and my sister is following. And weirdly enough, most of the herd has splintered off, but one, maybe two, are within eyesight and are stopping periodically. So I continue giving chase every once in a while, trying to remember everything I've been reading about pioneer times or whatever in books that I read as a kid. <laughs> and at some point I slow down because the deer has stopped and he's standing near a fallen tree, which is now a log by the water mm -hmm. and he's not moving and I start slowly walking forward and the deer doesn't move and it's got antlers pretty good sized ones yeah and I get closer and my sister's like what and I was like, shh 
when I reach my hand up and I'm able to touch the soft fur of the antler, the, the, the sort of fuzzies that eventually they'll sharpen off later. Yeah. And I'm mesmerized. And I think my sister came closer too and touched it as well. And then we wondered how close we should be and sort of backed up. And then it was like we turned because we heard a noise and we looked back and the deer was gone. Mm. And I remember writing that down and the teacher I had at the time said, wow, you're really lucky you weren't wounded. That was, uh, you know, those those antlers at that fuzzy stage are really raw and sensitive and you could have been harmed. And and I wondered to myself, like, wow, do I do I remember this the way I think I do? I've never actually asked my sister this question if she remembers it, too. I I now I'm, I'm curious, too. But it's not one that I talk about a lot. Um, and I don't know why. Uh, but when you asked me, that was one of the first ones that came to mind. It was like, you know, I don't actually tell people that story very often. Um, I, I don't know if it's because I think I won't be believed or because so much of it is, you know, wrapped up in the sort of fuzzy haze of youth that feels so much more distant now than it did when I was younger. Um mm-hmm. But no, that's not a story I tell a lot. And uh, this is probably the first time, this is definitely the first time I've ever uh, shared it in a public forum or really talked about it out loud much. Maybe one or two, I, I really can't think of sharing it very often, if at all. Wow. I mean, it, it was <laughs> like a line which in a wardrobe micro version of that. <laughs> it, felt like the, it felt like there's a bit of fantasy to it and not because the memory is a fantasy, but like the way you set up the the setting and the suspense and the just like in how you told it, it felt um, like a good children's movie, you know, where it's like mm. the the what do you call that? The awe. Yeah, the awe, right? Of being that close to an animal that very so rarely lets any other animal get close to it, right? That yeah. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. It it was a really lovely experience. Mm-hmm. I don't know why. I part of me couldn't believe like that I was so lucky, or that yeah. this animal would let me so close, or why it was. Um, you know, I wondered afterwards: was it hurt in some way, or was it just, you know, so domesticated? Um, I, I've whenever it comes up in my brain, I toss it around, just like what was that? Mm-hmm. And I don't know, but. It, it definitely was part of imbuing that sense of wonder for me that I think I continue to seek out that, that awe that we can experience just yeah. in the most unexpected places in life. Oh, that's so beautiful. I have goosebumps. <laughs> <laughs> You're so sweet. Um, I, uh, that's where I get the hope thing from. Um, you know, yesterday my wife put on a pair of rollerblades for the first time in forever and I can't skateboard the way I used to as a kid, but I found one that is a longboard that you can use a paddle with a rubber stopper and you can paddle yourself along. And yesterday evening with everything going on in the current climate, there's a nature trail nearby us. And we just did like a little mile or so ride uh, at sunset and you can see light streaming through the clouds. And mm-hmm. I remember Trey stopped to get a picture with the plane flying by and that was one of those moments where I thought, this is just this glorious glimpse of awe, you know, this wonderful moment of just, there's a sweetness to it, you know, there's a recognition that 
you're experiencing something that you can't replicate. You could try and paint or put into words, but you can see the beauty of it and sort of count your blessings for being someone who's either witnessing or experiencing it. Mm. Um, I, I remember being moved when I read a story once and it was told from the vantage point of the character whose only job ended up being telling the story of these magnificent, wonderful, heroic figures and what they did and that their job was just to capture it all down. Yeah. And I think when I stopped trying to be the hero of my own story or <laughs> out, whether or not I was supposed to be the hero of a story, Mm-hmm. that I really took comfort in that idea of being the person who told the stories, who mm-hmm. could, you know, find uh, a place as someone who said, look, I saw this. I'm going to share it with you and tell it with you. And there's a, a joy and a beauty and a gift to to getting to be that person. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I'm... I'm I asked the right question. <laughs> <laughs> Sarah, you are really practicing this really as well. It's a beautiful place. <laughs> um, um, you've you answered have... my other questions because I also was curious, and maybe you can elaborate on this, even though we touched on it. I was going to ask what stops people from um, sharing authentic stories um, and how we can overcome that fear. So you did say it, but I don't know, maybe you want to address that specific question more specifically. Is like what might hinder us as, you know, just gen- average humans from telling stories and then how can we overcome that fear? Or more specifically, what are some ways you overcome the fear? That is a good question. Um, you know, the first thing that comes to mind is a quote who I can't attribute. Uh, I can remember the quote, which is um, the the biggest reason why people don't do something is the knowledge that they can. And and that really bothers me in a good way. And that it reminds me of that. There's a feeling, you know, it's 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 the feeling that writers can experience when they tell someone they've written something. Mm -hmm. And someone says, yeah, I should write. I have all these great stories. Oh, yeah, I used to write. I can do that. Um, Sometimes I write, too. And there's that devaluing of the thing that you're trying to share by saying, oh, yeah, well, everybody can do that. It's like breathing or walking. Like mm-hmm. I, I wrote in grade school and high school, man. I can write. I'm a writer. Um, there's a <laughs> there's a, a feeling that goes with that, that idea of, you know, well, I can do this at any point. So what's the rush? Or mm-hmm. if I'm going to do it, I should do it the right way. And that's often been the biggest struggle. Um, It's what's hindered me at times when it came to putting together a website, pushing out as a a writer instead of trying to find a career that would allow me to write, which is one of my biggest pursuits. When I first finished up at CCA, I was getting married. I couldn't ask Tracy to, you know, hang out while I tried to figure out what my writing course direction would be post uh, MFA. And ended up becoming a meat cutter and then just exhausted all the time, unable to write, uninspired, trying to find paths that other writers took. You know, I couldn't become a postal worker. It just wasn't in the cards for me. But I know that writers have done it. Uh, I I couldn't become a patent guy because clearly Einstein was just way smarter than me at that, too. Um, I I knew a lot of people that had done it as teachers. And I knew that I'd had experience teaching and educating and, and done well with it. But every path I took trying to create a career that would let me write 
the career never let me write. Mm-hmm. It just it didn't. Mm-hmm. And the knowledge that I would eventually or could really frustrated me. Um, and uh, I think at some point there comes this thing where you've stopped wasting time for whatever reason. You've stopped ignoring yourself, putting it off, delaying, denying, ignoring. And when you stop doing that, much like I think I had to when it came to me not drinking anymore, it was like, hey, you can either keep lying to yourself or at some point you can look at the consequences of the lies. And not being true to yourself, not being authentic to yourself is really going to continue down a a destructive path for you. Um, For me, it became a necessity. For others, I think the first place it often comes from is that feeling that they can do it and they will do it. Just they're going to get around to it. So not placing a priority on making it something that you do because you're comfortable in the knowledge that you can, Mm. um, which is a false security. Because Mm -hmm. then you actually try and do it. You're aware of just how difficult it is, how hard you have to work at it. And then you come up against that question of, is this something I really want to do? Yeah. And um, I think the hardest part then is remembering if it's something you want to do, why you wanted to do it in the first place. Because if you did, there was always a reason. Mm -hmm. Um, I think my first was that I felt like when I said something, if I said it the right way, I could get people to pay attention. And if I could get people to pay attention, maybe I could do something with that attention. Um, My first exposure was actually in a seventh, eighth grade English class at a private school where my mom taught Mm -hmm. and wasn't actually getting a great education. And I didn't like my English teacher, but a sub came in and he had us write a writing prompt. And I wrote a prompt about car race and just went all out. And he's reading this. And by the time he's done, he's like, so you want to know who the student was and when he pointed me out the whole class and I remember this one girl with like short curly hair big eyes looks at me and goes you You (laughs) and I remember thinking to myself like people don't know who I am until they read my writing people don't know that I'm capable of this Um, and I think I came back to that feeling of like well I did something there when I wrote something that got through to people And that became one of my core desires was so often I felt like there was something I felt I wanted to say and I wanted to find a way to get it through to others. Mm -hmm. And that was a big part of my motivation many times. Yes. But uh, going back to, oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, so I think that um, is a message directly for me (laughs) (laughs) because I am teaching full time and it is, you know, an ideal, quote unquote, ideal profession for having time to write, you know. Um, yeah, weekends, you know, especially at the university level, you know, there are days when you don't have classes and that kind of thing. You have summers. But I know that kind of you have helped me to peel back the veil as to why I'm not as productive as I aspire to be. And it is this sense that, oh, I have so much time. I do have all summer, right, when I'm not teaching. And so I fill all that time with things that are not writing. (laughs) So, yeah, I (laughs) definitely take that to heart. Um, 
but I felt like there were some other parts of your question I might not have gotten to. Um, I know you asked me what are the main reasons that we don't, and I felt like there was another part or two. Would you mind asking the other parts of it as well? Yes, I am. I think the second part was how can we overcome that? Um, mm-hmm. I feel like you sort of addressed it. <laughs> I was getting there. I think the yeah. biggest way we can overcome it is make the choice and commit to the choice. Mm-hmm. Um, I've made a commitment to myself to read more during this time when the Bay Area where I live is in shelter in place. Yeah. Um and actually, it's been about a bunch of comic books that I've been wanting to read that are very deep and heavy, and I want to give myself time to read them while I've got that time. Um, I also have been wanting to do these podcast YouTube videos that turn my podcast into videos. I've been trying to take time doing that. And my hope is that I can build enough of a pattern um, to have it sustained once this period is lifted, which I hope and believe it will. One of the things that, and I didn't do AA meetings very well. We had some disagreements about philosophy and what makes me or, uh, sober or not, or whether I'm following the path correctly. And I chose my own path and kind of stumbled along it. But in that process, I did come across some gems that I remember. And there is this one that always stuck with me. It takes 30 days to create a habit. Yeah. And it takes 90 days to make it last. And mm-hmm. right now, witnessing and recognizing that this is a period when we could all be doing the things we say we want to be doing is yeah. really a question of saying, okay, now are you really willing to invest the time? Because it can be easier to binge watch a favorite show, favorite TV series. Um, it can be easier to find ways to numb yourself through substance or uh, other tendencies, overeating, undereating, oversleeping, you can find ways to make the time pass, or you can take the time and invest something into it. The challenge is one of them is going to cost more than the other. One of them is going to ask a lot more than the other, and it's not going to feel as rewarding all the time. There's a comfort for me and eating a giant meal and having a giant belly and drinking a ton of water afterwards in order to cope with it and knowing that Mm. I did it. I'm full. I'm Mm -hmm. fulfilled. And yet knowing that I won't get that same fulfillment when I invested in reading and writing, I probably will from reading. I might not from writing, but I do know that if I want to get to that place where it's fulfilling, Mm. uh, I have to start doing it. (laughs) I have to get past the strain of working out in order to experience the highs of the endorphins. Mm -hmm. I have to recognize that, you know, the practice of doing it is going to be the slow, you know, and I remember taking a break from the gym and going back and I would have to repeat this mantra to myself of this is your first day back. You're going to suck. That's just the way it is. Okay. Once you're past that, then you can worry about how good you're going to do on day two and three, but Mm -hmm. your first day back to doing something. Yeah. You used to be good at it because you did it all the time. Want to be good at it again? Got to do it all the time. Um, And that comes back to a voice that, man, when I stopped drinking uh, the day that I made the decision and then started on the path to not, uh, a really unpleasant part of myself was very disapproving. It was like, hey, do you like the way your life is going? No? Well, you better do something about it. And that part of me sometimes will step in and go, hey, do you want to look at the end of your day and say that you didn't write? 
Well, mm. you better write something because at the end of the day, if you say, oh, I didn't write anything, look in the mirror. You're the only person to explain it to. And I think that's a little bit of my dad coming into play of, you mm. know, you're only accountable to yourself for your own actions. You know, you only have yourself to look to when you do or don't do something. Mm-hmm. And you know, creating that accountability for yourself, being able to look yourself in the mirror and say, I either did it or didn't do it today. What am I going to do or not do tomorrow? Um, it's a hard question. And it means sometimes being honest with yourself in a way you don't like, which is, yeah, today I didn't live up to my expectations. What am I going to do tomorrow? Yeah, and, absolutely. You know, that's not an easy place to be, an easy thing to say, or an easy question to answer. Mm -hmm. But um, I do think if you're willing to make the effort, you're going to find that the practice pays off. I don't think I sound nearly as good as uh, you have uh, so kindly said that I do when I'm answering these questions. (laughs) But I believe that if in any way I actually do, it's because of practice. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And was there any other part of that question? Because it felt like I had a couple pieces. And I just want to make sure I'm being as thorough as you have so thoughtfully been for me. No, I think that was it. I think I just restated it like a few different ways. Okay. Okay. Yeah, the core was the same. Yeah. um, You know, a lot of people don't like the idea of fear. And Mm -hmm. I don't like the idea of fear either. But... I do know that my not liking it isn't going to go away. Uh-huh. Uh, knowing that it's there and what it's telling me is a way that I can still walk side by side with fear mm-hmm. and keep it from being an obstacle. Because the thing I'm about to do that's fearful, the fear won't go away. I can't chase it away, but I can move forward knowing that even if it's there side by side with me, I choose what it does and what I allow it to do. Sometimes I'm, I'm not as strong as I want to be. Fear wins, um, but it doesn't have to win every time. And it doesn't mean I have to give up. It just means I, I sometimes have to accept what I was or wasn't able to do that day, either because of myself, because of something outside. Um, but it's been part of this thing that uh, I hope is a journey towards eventual acceptance um i'm trying yeah and i can relate to acceptance as well and like part of that is self-compassion too so there's no point in like beating ourselves up at the end of the day for what we did or did not do um i think it's enough to reflect and like you said ask what am i going to do tomorrow um because we can't go back and redo the day you know so I think it's, it is more productive and more helpful instead of, for me, like what I fall into is like, oh my gosh, I'm such a terrible person. Why am I so lazy? You know, that's not going to help me write tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Instead, what will help me write tomorrow is saying, okay, well, I'm going to write for the first hour before I get caught up in emails, you know, or just using the reflection on the day to make a plan for the next day. Definitely. Um you know, giving yourself and giving yourself a break. Like, hey, today wasn't your day. Mm-hmm. That's okay. Make tomorrow your day. You know, um, try and figure out what got in the way today that you can keep from being a problem tomorrow. 
and know that the fact that you're trying is mm -hmm. one of the hardest things and one of the biggest elements to your hopeful success. You know, if you're going to get anywhere, it's got to start with you trying. Absolutely. <laughs> Sarah, love chatting with you today. Um, man, I... I'm really kind of surprised uh, at some of the stuff I ended up talking about, which I was not prepared for. Um, but I really loved answering your questions. And I love the fact that this was a, a conversation that was a back and forth. Um, mm -hmm. First couple of times, it felt like I was interviewing my, my friend, the expert. And this time it was having a conversation with my friend, the expert. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was, it was a great conversation. I have a multicolored uh, assortment of notes here. <laughs> You're so awesome. <laughs> yeah. I, I do timestamps and stuff like that. Like, oh, that was a good point. I'm going to come back to that ah, later. Ah, gotcha. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> but I like, the, I like the, the colorful approach. That sounds really cool. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I think if I was going to ask you one last thing before we sort of because I, I see the counter. I'm curious how long people will join in for a two-hour conversation. I know they they will, and I hope they stay all the way to the end because this next one is going to be, you know, right now, what is something you see as being uh, a part of this storytelling environment we're experiencing? Coronavirus, people sheltering in place, um, a sense of that fear being so pervasive around us right now. And yet at the same time, you and I are having this conversation. Mm -hmm. You and I are, are taking our approaches to it. And yeah. There can be positive and negative ways to respond to this. Um, I'm glad that I get the chance to use it in a positive way by scheduling our talk today and, and getting the chance to talk with you and, and share it with others. Um, you know, when you're taking into account what's occurring around us right now. Is there a feeling, is there uh, any sort of sense that you find yourself drawn to or focusing on right now? Or is it something that you address and then after addressing it, you have to get on with the things that you know or want to do? Yeah, so for me, it's, I think, what we're doing now is indicative of, I'm going to start with something really technical, the role and the significance of the internet and just digital technology in our lives, right? Like I could not imagine going through this without internet. I know older generations have gone through similar things are worse things even depending on what generation exactly they're in you know without this kind of technology but i think what's unfolding is that although the internet and digital media and stuff like that gets a bad rap for various reasons um i'm finding that leaning into the this platform this medium this technology is such an important tool for so many people you know um, even if it's cell phone technology, right? It's still a new technology where people can hear the voice of a loved one or see the face of a loved one or get um, real-time chats, um, like immediate text messages, right? They don't have to wait 
three weeks to get a letter in the mail to know how their sibling across the country is doing. You know what I mean? Um, so I think the one of the biggest things that I've been reflecting on at this time is how these tools, right? That's all technology is, no matter how advanced it is, it's still just a tool like a pen and paper is a tool. Um, how we can use them to bring out the best in ourselves and bring out the best in each other, you know? And it doesn't always have to be the, the shadow parts of technology or the shadow parts of the internet that win. And I think a time like this is a perfect opportunity for us to bring out the best in what this technology um, has to offer, you know, in terms of making connections with people and staying connected. And I think it's interesting that the term we're using is called social distancing because it's actually helping people to reconnect, right? Like you and I, it's been a couple of years since we've had a, you know, a live conversation and I have, I'm getting emails and text messages from old friends that I haven't had a phone conversation with in a while. And they're asking, you know, for a phone call. They're asking for a Google Hangout. They're asking for a Skype call. Um, so in a lot of ways, social, the physical social distance is sort of making us communicate more in a lot of ways. And I find that to be fascinating. Um, and one of the many things I've seen online, I had uh, a teacher, you know, tell her students, you know, like, tell this story, right? Like you are officially part of history, right? The coronavirus COVID-19 in 2020 will be recorded as a major world history event, you know, for future generations. And just kind of like what you did with the podcast and going to an event where you, you've sensed that something's different about this moment that I want to document, that I want to record, that I want to share my perspective on, right? And I think so many uh, people can do that now, right? And as a way to process the isolation, process the loneliness, process the boredom or the cabin fever, right? And say something is different about this moment, right? That we didn't feel in January of 2020, that we didn't feel in August of 2019. Like this is significantly palpably, palpably different for so many people. And um, turning to storytelling, turning to the various mediums of expression that we could all have access to, to both document this moment, this collective moment that we're all experiencing, but also using those modes of expression to help you process the emotions, to help you um, sort of have a cathartic experience as well and not let it um, be turned inward into sort of a toxic experience. You know, I think reaching outward is a good way to avoid the anxiety and the stress and the panic that this kind of situation might incite. So I don't know if that was on the head of what you were asking, <laughs> but that's like how I've been reflecting about the moment so far. And now we're gonna take a quick break to pay some bills with this word from our sponsor. How about now? I don't know what happened. Yes, Hello? I can see you now. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I I thought, I guess there were two mute buttons that somehow need to be disengaged. So I was quietly oh. listening and I hit the other one and I'm like, what? She can't hear me. Where's the other button at? Okay, there's the other button. Gotcha. Um, so I do think that you 
did a great job of one, I wasn't looking for you to hit the nail on the head of anything, but mm -hmm. I did know that I wanted to get your insights because you've had a great history of discovering insights. And I'm reminded that it was in one of our classes together where you were reading a series of essays. And I think it had to do with Czech literature. Did you take Czech literature with me? Yeah. I okay. I don't remember. And, it was, and it, was a, it was a series of essays, and one of them was about the power of no. Mm -hmm. And you really took that essay and embraced it and started using it in some of your writing. Because mm -hmm. you were like, yeah, I was looking at the negative of no. But then I started realizing all the positive of no that was mm -hmm. available and how you could say no to fear, no to uncertainty, no mm -hmm. to doubt, no to all these different things. Um, oh, and I'm going to discover that book of essays and I'm going to send you a, a message because I'm sure you're going to know exactly the ones that I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. But I think it was in either correlation with or it might have been part of that cup of coffee with my interrogator. If not, then it was one of the other books that went with. But it was this really great insight that you had shown me in that moment and that I could hear when you were answering the question now, which is, what can we discover from this? Well, we can discover our own ability to be documentarians of this moment. We can discover our own way to be historians. We can be part of the narrative that describes what this moment was like, what it was like for us, and how our voices can add to a collection capturing this experience and making it as palpable for others. And while that wasn't where I knew your answer would go. <laughs> it, it's such a wonderful job of talking about this idea because that is a way that maybe not everyone is considering that mm -hmm. you like taking photos and documenting stuff on your Instagram document. Now, this is a moment in history that you can capture with a viewpoint. No one else can experience or duplicate. Mm -hmm. You have other ways that you can share your insights, your uh, viewpoints, or what your position in life allows you to see unlike anyone else. And because you can contribute to that, you can be part of recognizing the power of this moment and revealing it to others so that they can either get a better understanding of the scope or add to their own understanding. And with that, that this moment can be about hopelessness, fear, locking away, doing nothing, or it can be about taking advantage of the fact that you have the time to make the connections you've been wanting the time to make connections for, that the things you want to have time to do, you have, that social distancing can actually be a time of reconnecting. Mm -hmm. And I had no idea <laughs> where you would take that to, but as soon as I heard it, I thought, those were the insights I was looking for. I just didn't know it when I was, you know, asking the question. Um, and I think what's important about that, too, is that we can find those insights by asking of each other. What are you seeing right now? What are you experiencing right now? How is this moment affecting you? And what does it make you think? What does it uh, encourage you to see or consider? What does it inspire you to do? Because it's those shared conversations that can lead to you and I walking away from this going, you know, Sarah said something and I'm remembering that even now. And it's going to be something that I respond to when I write the next thing, read the next thing, plan the next thing. And that vice versa, there could be something I said that 
holds a resonance with you that afterwards you're saying to yourself, you know what, that's something either I didn't remember, remembered, or didn't think about. And this is what I can do with it now that I have. Um, perhaps with all this social distancing and the reconnecting it's creating, we can find the inspirations in each other, the insights through each other to re-examine where we are, what we're doing, could or should be doing right now. And uh, I never even considered that until I heard your answer. Yay! (laughs) (laughs) Um, Once again, uh, Sarah, thank you for taking what's been like, wow, you gave me two and a half hours of your day. I really appreciate that. I really appreciate you taking the time to just talk with me for a while and let us record this and share it with others. Um, Is there anything left before I start asking you to plug where people can find you and how they can contact you? Is, is there any, any final thought or word? Um, I think, I think we are at a good place, you know, to, to wrap it. Um, I just also want to say thank you to you. Uh, obviously, I'm experiencing social distancing myself, so I have enjoyed the two and a half hours to reconnect and have a you know engaging conversation. So, and it's always good to hear from an old friend, and you know to hear that you're doing well and everyone you care about is doing well. You know, so it's just very uplifting, inspiring, encouraging to have had this conversation for me as well. Ah, thank you. I, I feel the same way. Um, for everybody listening, you are now part of a loving welcome, enjoy, <laughs> and carry it on with you. Hey, uh, for anyone who's out there and wants to follow up with you about colorism healing, mm-hmm. colorism healing about uh, the contest when it next comes up, when the chapbook will be out, when... Uh, there are other ways that they can engage, contact you. How do they make a connection with you? Where are the places where they can find your content, uh, reach out to you with their ideas? Mm-hmm. Where are you in the uh, internet world, Sarah? Yes. So the hub are the place where they can go for the most basic information and updates is the website, colorismhealing.com. Also, if they want more immediate engagement, I love to interact on social media, especially Instagram. So Instagram at Colorism Healing um, is a great way to contact me. I'm also on Facebook at Colorism Healing and um, TikTok for people who have joined that bandwagon. (laughs) I'm at Colorism Healing as well. And then there's also email um, so I have Sarah, S-A-R-A-H, at colorismhealing.org. So I apologize for the difference in .org versus .com, but I recently transitioned the website to a .com, so that's why my email address is a little different. You are forgiven. Just <laughs> on, on behalf of everyone, just deal with it. I forgave her, so it's done. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> regarding the rest, if you haven't had a chance to check out Colorism Healing, I highly recommend going to the website, taking a look at the content, reading the stories. And if you find something inspiring, which I'm pretty sure you will, reach out to Sarah. Um, 
you're going to engage in a conversation that I am confident will probably change your life, if not your perspective. So I'm going to encourage you to find her out there. Uh, I usually try and list all my stuff at the end. So any of the ways you want to reach out to me, listen for that on the little tag part I put at the end of this conversation. But uh, one final time, Sarah, thank you so much. Thank you for your insights, your perspective, and uh, for more importantly, you are uh, a great person I am lucky enough to include in, uh, in my group of friends, and thank you for being such a bright light. Yay, thank you, sir. <laughs> <laughs> my pleasure. We're going to go ahead and uh, stop the recording for this one and say goodbye. All right. And that brings my conversation with Dr. Sarah Webb and episode number 69 of Storytelling with Seth to a close. You just heard all the great ways to get in touch with Dr. Sarah Webb regarding colorism healing, any questions that might have come up today, or anything else you would like to talk to her about or make contact regarding. I'd also like to encourage you that if you enjoyed our conversation today and would like to hear more from her, you can do so here on Storytelling with Seth. You can go through the episodes to find our previous conversation in which we had an opportunity to talk about many of the topics that were in my current scope at that time, such as representation in gaming and art, and a myriad of other topics and great discussion that followed. As far as me, well, I've been your host, Seth Singleton. Regarding how to reach out to me, there are a few ways you can find me online in the social media realm as one more singleton on twitter seth the writer on instagram through my website and facebook page seth singleton storyteller or here on storytelling with seth where you can subscribe rate and review I will also encourage you, if you enjoy the content you hear here and would like to hear more, you can also find me recording episodes with the DC Comics News podcast team over at DC Comics News and also hosting their once a week five issue pick feature known as the DC Comics News Spinner Rack, where I pick my top five books each and every week from DC Comics and justify why I believe they're the best picks for you. Those are all the many ways you can reach out and find me. Choose the one that works best for you. Leave me that message. Let me know your thoughts. And if you have a story you think belongs on Storytelling with Seth that you would like to share or at least like me to know about, so I can find the best ways to share it, either here or on another platform. Well, please, use all of those ways I just mentioned, whether it's Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, my website, or more. And when you do, I look forward to talking more with you about the next story. In the meantime, look forward to more stories coming soon, right here on Storytelling with Seth. Until next time, I look forward to sharing another story with you.